Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined today by the star of our show, our newest show, very popular, Cott's Corner, with the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Uh, today is our 147th episode on the network. And before we begin, I want to thank our now 14,500 subscribers. We just eclipsed that number right before the, the producing of this show. And just to remind you guys, continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. It helps us get an idea of who we're reaching and how we're reaching you. And we'll continue to give you great content with shows like this and then ones we've given you throughout the week. Tap into your favorite streaming uh, device. We are locked in with all of them, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. And hit us up on social media. We have Twitter, Instagram, and you guys took me out of my cave and got me into Facebook reluctantly, but I'm in there and answering a question every morning. And one of the questions I answered today has a little bit to do with one of our topics that Jim will cover, but I'll hit one every morning. And we had three shows yesterday we taped and then the one today. And in between the three days, there was over 800 questions thrown into my DM box on Facebook. And I'm almost done responding to everybody. And I promise you, I'll get to you by the end of the day if I didn't. And, uh, Jim, we've reached over 70 countries now. We're in 73 countries following the World Baseball Classic. We hit a couple more uh, from grassroots all the way up to the Major League front offices. So um, all of our shows, specifically, uh, especially yours, is touching a lot of people out there. So we appreciate what you're doing, and welcome back to your show. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I enjoy doing it, and that's so good to hear about uh, the different countries because, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, the uh, the tributes that came from all corners of the world and all athletes, Jordan Spieth, the golfer, and several other that have commented on uh, what a treat it was to see the World Baseball Classic. So uh, uh, the that's getting more and more exposure, and uh, it's not quite there with the World Cup yet. I was talking to a gentleman from Coca-Cola who was involved in sponsorship and telling me that you know, the magnitude of the World Cup. But I said, you know, that might be what the World Baseball Classic is chasing. To get uh, to get somewhere in their neighborhood would be quite an accomplishment. Yeah, the World Cup is a is an entity unto itself. And if the World Baseball Classic could even come close to that, yeah, that would be great for baseball globally. Um, and we can probably start there. I mean, we I agree with you. This is about as excited as I've been in a long time watching baseball. And I, I don't know if I'm, I guess I'm not embarrassed to say it. I probably watched more baseball during this classic than probably the second half of all, all last season, excluding the playoffs. Um, I watched pretty much every game as it came on. It didn't matter what time of day or night I was tuned in. And friends of mine, neighbors of mine, people who do not watch baseball were riveted by what was going on in the classic. How do you explain that? Well, I think you explain it by the uniforms and the in the name of the countries on the uniforms and the fan base that gets behind them and creates this enthusiasm over a short period of time that we don't see over 162 games during the season. And and as Rob Manfred has pointed out, I've seen he said we we have tried to figure out the best way for this to fit until our head hurts and. Uh, so all of us amateurs on the sideline have these ideas of how it could be in the perfect place. You know, it gets uh, the enthusiasm gets dampened a bit when you see injuries to key players. Of course, one of them was just a matter of foolishness. So somehow uh, managers, general managers, owners have to have to, uh, you know, lecture players on, hey, it, it you know, it, it's not a circus. When you do something great, it's fine to show your enthusiasm, but you you have to be a little discretionary with what you're doing out there in the middle of the field. But the, I think uh, the uniforms and the countries behind them, um, I think that's what kind of made the World Baseball Classic the best it's ever been. I've announced three of them going back to 2009. And even then, I enjoyed doing the pool in Puerto Rico because there was a lot of there was a lot of enthusiasm there. You know, I would say with Venezuela, Puerto Rico, the Dominican, uh, Mexico, Japan, and the United States, there you have the six leaders of the you know the fans that really get behind them. But now the other countries like Israel and Italy and some of the smaller smaller countries uh, are beginning to pick up some. 
some enthusiasm and some popularity as well. And as you and I, I think, would hope for is that New Zealand is included in that mix down the road as well. Absolutely. We have uh, both we have personal, professional ties there. And and it's a, you know, it's, it's so close to Australia, which has done well in baseball, that it just seems logical that they'll be they'll be the next men up in that. You, and you, you mentioned in your notes to me, um, and you may have touched on it a little bit, that you had a little bit of a dream of how the World Baseball Classic would be used. And you're by no means an amateur on the sideline. As, well, well, you know, it's, it, it's, it's one of those things that, unfortunately, because of the precedent of the 162-game baseball season and the amount of revenue it means to owners, particularly on the local level, that it's, it's like an impossibility to happen. But I really think in a perfect world, and I've said this even without the World Baseball Classic, and I've mentioned it to the, to the higher-ups in the commissioner's office and a lot of writers that, you know, back when I fell in love with baseball in 1946 and into the 50s, and even when I played baseball in those days, we owned the summer Uh Football was not that big a deal, nor basketball, nor hockey, and nor the Final Four. And they all ended when the snow was still on the ground. And then when the snow melted, hey, it's time for the pitchers and catchers to report in February, early March. And then baseball owned the whole summer right through what we called the Fall Classic, which usually ended the World Series in the first week of October. Well, now with all these other sports encroaching on the beginning of the season and they even start before the season is over. In a perfect world, baseball would not have more than 100 games. And if you had 100 games and the season ended on Labor Day, month of September could be called the Fall Classic, and that would be all the playoffs, and then you'd call it the USA Championship. Uh, because it's no longer really the World Series, because we found out Japan just won, and you know they're they're not part of the United States. So then you you might have uh, a little break, and then since the players are accustomed to playing 162 games, well, it should be a piece of cake to just play 100, and then the playoffs, and then uh, get a little break and play the World Baseball Classic after that, because these other teams will have played their season as well. Uh, but again, financially, that would never happen. But if we started from scratch, that might be the best way to, to do it. And I know Rob, Rob Manford, it's, it's, uh, he's trying to find the best way, and it's just so difficult. Uh, you don't want to stop the big league season halfway through. But right now, I think this is the best they have to offer. But I, I wish we could find a little better way for it to fit. Yeah. So my text back to you were with my dream was to play it every year. It was kind of, I said, geez, Christmas comes every year. Why can't we do this every year as well? well I, I would agree with you. I think it's something that uh, certainly could be done every year. If they didn't want and they want to ease into it, do it, do it every two years. You know, it's, it's kind of uh, sad to think now that we'd have to wait four more years and maybe see an Otani or a a Mike Trout confrontation, and by that time, there's going to be new stars on, on yeah. the field when you when you have a four year absence. So I, I would agree with you. It'd be cool if they could have it every year. Yeah, well, I'm with you. So we're starting a committee today, me and you, okay. and whoever wants, you know, <laughs> yeah. 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 wants to join us, get get in touch. I've got another WBC question, and it it kind of parallels what basketball did a few years back. Now, when you watch the classic here, Japan has been a consistent uh, contender. They've been in the final four of the WBC. I, I believe every year it's been in uh, that we've been doing it. And in watching them, they looked more uh, like they were part of a system, uh, like they had been doing this together for a long period of time, uh, that the coaches and the players were, were on the same page. And I understand that they probably have been. Where our U.S. players, they did phenomenal. I was very, very excited for the U.S. But ego-wise, we should be winning this thing. And I know we won it last time. Um, we had a great offensive team there. I don't necessarily think we put our best pitchers um, in play. How do we um, – can we resemble what basketball did where, if you remember, they, they named a national coach, Mike Krzyzewski. Then Jerry Colangelo was kind of the czar, without, for lack of a better word, where he was the, the GM of – 
what was going on. And they got buy-in from the NBA and they had, you know, a pool of participants over a four-year period so that when they got to those games, they had game experience together. They had practices together. They knew, um, and, and I, I'll bring up a couple situations once, once I get your thoughts, but do you think we could do something like that in baseball? Well, I, I think so. I don't, I don't know that we need a different manager than Mark DeRosa. He's a very, you know, quality, qualified individual. I, I think it would be uh, good to check with the, I mean, players have played for a lot of managers and I think, you know, that was Mark's first experience, but I, I, I don't think you have to bring in a big name manager. I oh, mean, yeah. you have a quality guy like that, but yes, I think one of the things that has happened with Japan and, I think now Mexico, the Dominican, is I think for a long time uh, they were intimidated by what the level of baseball in the major leagues might be. Uh, you know, Dominican uh, relatively, Ozzie Virgil was the first Dominican player back in the 50s, and then Murakami, the first Japanese player in the 60s. So baseball in the United States has this great history and has always been talked about as, you know, the the greatest players in the world. So I'm sure the early years when Japan and uh, Dominican, Venezuela, Mexico were going against Team USA, some of the, particularly the Japanese players, might have been a little intimidated because there weren't that many of them playing in the United States. Ichiro was the first position player. Up until then, it was mostly pitchers, and I can't say any of them are what you'd call Cy Young Award. They have spurts of success. But there is the key right there, as you mentioned, with no disrespect to the pitchers that were there because anybody that's a big league pitcher has accomplished something and deserves deserves credit for being a big leaguer. But to get Verlander, Scherzer, DeGrom, well, of course, Alcantara, some of the great pitchers in, in the major leagues now are pitching for other countries. But to get our great pitchers on board, uh, I don't care how big a star-studded lineup you have. I think we found out what the Japanese pitchers with the talent they have, especially in this way they operate games today, where you come in with a different pitcher every inning or inning and a fraction, which I... I hate from a baseball standpoint, but from winning a game standpoint and something like that, it certainly uh, it certainly was what makes a big difference. But you're right. We need, and I think Mike Trout, Nolan Arenado, I've read some of the comments that they're going to encourage their guys because to a man, they have all talked about, uh, uh, you know, the praise for what a thrill it was to be a part of that whole experience. And they're going to try to encourage some of these other guys to, jump on and be a part of it as well. Yeah. To, I mean, like you said, to a man, they spoke, I mean, finally would be an understatement. They, they were, some were saying that was the most fun they've had in baseball ever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a bold statement when you're a, you know, 10 time all-star playing in the big right. And that's, that's a, that's a great testament to what the world baseball classic could become. And maybe, maybe we could get to that world cup stage. That would be phenomenal. If yeah, we, I don't think, I think we, they probably aren't going to change a lot of things because baseball is a little slow to, to change things. And you lean on tradition a lot. You honor the past, but you don't necessarily have to lean on it all the time. You should be able to make changes, but the fall classic is no longer the world series. It's just the fall classic because now we've seen what the world series is like when you get Japan and Dominican and Venezuela, Mexico, Puerto Rico, you get all those, uh, uh, all those teams together, then uh, we have we have different uh, entries there besides just the United States team. Yeah, and um, one one other sidebar on the classic: we didn't have any of the rule changes imposed during the classic. So the pitch clocks and and um, the bigger bases, and you know how many times you could throw over. And the games, I, I don't think fans cared how long the games went. I know watching it, I didn't, and I didn't hear a single complaint about the the length of games and the fans looked super engaged. I mean, that, and again, that's an understatement and to boot, the baseball was good. Guys were, you know, moving the ball around. I mean, it's back-to-back hits. I saw in the one game with Betts and Trout going opposite field base hits through the shift um, or against the shift, I should say. And uh, you know, what, what's your thoughts on that? Is that uh, no rule, no rules imposed. The game seemed to go fine, right? 
Yeah, I, I think the the complaint is not all is not being just length of the games; it's the pace of play and what is involved in. Uh, for example, on July, I think it was July first, back in two thousand four, somewhere in that area, I may have done the most exciting Yankee Red Sox game I was ever a part of. And that was the game when Derek Jeter drove in, dove into the front row and bloodied his nose. And it oh, was yeah. 13 innings. And John Flaherty, who is now a, a great broadcaster for the Yes Network covering the Yankees, he got the winning RBI in the 13th. And I believe that game went a little over five hours. But it was chock full of a lot of drama and trauma. And uh, so it was enjoyable to be there. But when you get a three-and-a-half-hour game without the ball being put in play. And a lot of the time is spent with hitters fastening their hitting gloves and putting their body armor on and off, and pitchers thinking they need 20 seconds to let their arm recover so they can throw the next pitch. Uh, that's what we have to eliminate. And, and unfortunately, because the players haven't taken it upon themselves, this pitch clock rule uh, had to be, uh, you know, put in there. And I, I think that's the one rule that I believe will have a positive effect. I think it'll have a domino effect on hitters not stepping out of the box. I uh, wish they could take away their body armor and a few things like that. Uh, and then maybe the commercial time, uh, you start cutting that back. And I think it'll, as it did in the era that I played in, encourage you to, uh, uh, as I've always said, many other coaches have worked fast, throw strikes, and keep the line moving, keep your fielders on your toes, and you see a better brand of baseball, and I hope we do that this year. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so, too. I've, I've always, uh, I would, again, I, like like you said, I wish they didn't have to impose rules to to get players to do that, because I think it takes some of that cat and mouse away from the, the pitcher and hitter, the, that little relationship and uh, the pitcher base runner and also the shift. I wish, I wish the hitters hit themselves out of the shift so they couldn't shift anymore, that they didn't have to. Right. Yeah, they, they're the ones responsible for doing it because they wouldn't go the other way. Uh, yeah, and I think the pitchers, I think Max Scherzer was, was starting to talk to uh, some of the pitchers about working fast. And, of course, I, you know, I, uh, I can personally attest to how, <laughs> how important that is because – uh, a lot of our fans and listeners now don't remember maybe back in the 70s, but I had come up through with Johnny saying my career was about over. And Johnny suggested this quick pitch motion, and uh, uh, it just did wonders for me. Uh, I remember Brooks Robinson saying, telling me, he said, boy, you picked the lap up on your fastball. I said, no, Brooksy, I didn't. I said, I'm just not giving you as much time to get ready. And like he said, yes, every hitter wants – the pitcher's motion to be a little, uh, a little mechanism that kickstarts the hitter's motion. Oh, yeah. That's how we learn. That's how we get yeah. it. And so if, if the pitcher, uh, Johnny Cueto does it once in a while, we're seeing some others that when you get the ball, you get the sign, just pitch. So as long as the hitter's in the box, he's got to be ready. And uh, I think we may see, we see more of this this year, but I, I did that on every pitch. And, you know, I, <laughs> one one of the things where it turned around and bit me is my good friend Bobby Mercer. We later announced games together. Uh, we're going to the ninth inning. Ed Halicki and I are wrapped up, and it's nothing, nothing, and there's uh, one out in the ninth. And Bobby had seen me enough that what he did after I threw a pitch, he stepped out of the box and asked for time and asked for the umpire to call for the ball. So as I was throwing the ball in, he got in the box and got himself set. And then I got a new ball, went to the quick pitch, and he was ready for it, pulled it over the right field wall, beat me one nothing. Oh. <laughs> so that you. was the way to defeat it. But they knew they had to be ready on, on every pitch, and the umpires loved it. The, the fielders loved it. Uh, and, and I just – I mean, Larry McWilliams, I think, tried it a little later with the Pirates. But I've encouraged a lot of pitchers to, to do that, and, and maybe this – you know, this will start the old study long, you study wrong and get it first instinct, look down at your catcher and let it go. Yeah. I can say as a defensive player, as a second baseman, I would have loved that as a yeah. hitter, as a hitter, I, I would not have liked, I didn't like of pitchers. Yeah. You know, you know that's why it's effective because hitters don't like it. <laughs> not only when you change your delivery or it's quicker, um, 
but but also the time to process a pitch. You know, you just threw something to me, you know, at 90 plus miles an hour uh, trying to elude me. And I have to have time to process that. You, know, you, have, you have two tenths of a second to process it coming to you. And if you only have, you know, half a second to process it the next one, that's a huge advantage to the pitcher, I think. Yeah, Brian Downing, that was Brian's first year as a catcher. He later went on to become a, a DH, a great hitter with the Angels. But that was his first year as a catcher. And I would say now when we start the game, I had this little different places on my uniform I might touch if I wanted to throw a different pitch. But it was just here. It's all fastballs until I shift something differently. And pitchers would be amazed if they worked quickly and, and commanded their fastball, how they could get through a batting order the first time through, because the first time through the hitter, he, he may have faced you before, but he doesn't know what kind of stuff you have today. And he doesn't know whether you're throwing a curve or a fastball or a slider or whatever that first time at bat. So you can, that's the, that's the pitcher's advantage to really work through that. And then when you get to inning number four, uh, if you've done that, or three, and nowadays you really don't have to go that far because the way they bring the bullpen in, well, you can start going to your second and third pitch. And, and that's why they say pitchers can't face a batting order the third time. Well, that's, you know, that's baloney. The reason they, they don't is because they don't change their pattern of pitching. And that's what it takes to work through a batting order that third and fourth time. Yeah. How, how much of that do you, and I know it's, there's a mental component to it, obviously, but from a physical component, how much of that can you attribute to lack of lower half training or leg training? Well, I think, so. you know, I, I poke the bear all the time. I just, uh, you know, it annoys me and it disappoints me. Uh, you hear this, well, we're protecting his arm. We're going to count his pitches because we, we don't want him to throw more than 90 pitches. We're going to protect his arm. Well, what they're doing by not allowing him to pitch more than, say, 70 pitches is he's never building up his legs. And your lower half supports motion. The upper half creates it. And if you don't have, a, I'll tell you a really quick side story. Is I just played in a three-day golf event with a bunch of buddies down here in South Carolina. And at age 84, my, sec, my second day was one of the better days that I've had in a long time. But now yesterday, my body just wasn't moving. My legs just... I'm not used to doing that. My, my legs just didn't give me the foundation I needed, and it was horrible. And the same thing is true in pitching. When you get to that seventh inning and the ball starts going high and away, it's not because your arm is getting fatigued. It's because your legs are getting fatigued, and they don't have the support to drive toward the plate and support that upper body. And what some of us did, Louis Tiant and I, in spring training – if, say, our fourth start of the spring, we went six innings, we would go down. I thought about this with the Adam Wainwright injury because I understand that he suffered this groin injury with a, with a weight room uh, incident of some kind. Well, what, what we did to condition our legs was after you pitched six innings during the game, you went down to the bullpen. When the opposing team got up, you pitched another – three, four, I, I can remember pitching as many as 12 innings with an average of facing four hitters an inning, but I didn't really throw the ball at full uh, velocity, you know, but I used my motion and my legs pushing off the rubber as if I were throwing in a game. And that's how you build up your legs. If we, we our goal was to be ready to pitch nine innings on opening day, and if you want to be ready to pitch nine innings, you, you want to be conditioned to pitch 15 innings. And unfortunately, that's out the window now. They've gone to, uh, you know, they shorten the pitcher's um, night on the mound. And, and what they're doing is they're not allowing them to, to build up the leg strength to enable them to pitch more innings. Yeah. Now, with, with the legs, and, and this goes across all sports, I believe, one of the adages that we use with our groups that we work with um, down here in Myrtle Beach is we, we talk to them about the importance of that lower half. And I love the phrase you used, you know, the lower half supports the movement, the upper half creates it. We let them know that our battle against the other team, whether it's baseball or basketball, it's your hitter is going to be first with the legs. And we're going to wear their lower halves out. And once we do that, 
it affects their mind and they stop thinking sharply because they, they realize they're tired. And once you get their mind, you get their heart. And uh, I'm right there with you. I think the legs, the, what's the old phrase? The legs feed the wolf. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think, you know, we got, a, I got a nice uh, email from our good friend, James Matthews, who's a promising young player, wonderful young man that I had the, the thrill of meeting he and his mother when I think James was nine years old over in Nelson, New Zealand. He's 15 now, and you've seen him since I have. And I think he's, you know, because he don't, doesn't throw exceptionally hard, there, there immediately is some pressure. Well, you know, in order to qualify to get scouted or something, you need to throw harder. Well, if your body is not mature yet, like uh, I've said this before, and some of our listeners out there probably have heard it, but... Uh, after my first summer in 1957 uh, in the rookie league, and so I was 18, 18 years old, and my manager said, kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance. Well, see, I was kind of gangly. My body had not filled out completely yet. I was only 5'10 when I graduated from high school. So uh, today they probably would have sent me packing. But by the next year, I was 6'4", 220. And then I started picking up a little velocity, but I did it naturally. And the baseball system allowed me to do that. Today, the baseball system, unfortunately, dictates to some of these young pitchers that could be good big league pitchers. They're forcing them to throw 95 miles an hour or whatever to even get scouted. And that is such a shame. I mean, I've talked about it in the past with Whitey Ford and other pitchers that pitched in the big leagues for Tommy John. I saw Tommy John last uh, Sunday in Chicago, and we were talking about his, uh, you know, what he went through with his surgery. And, you know, nowadays we we wouldn't get a chance to pitch because what the system has done, which is so anti-baseball and, and the conditioning programs for pitchers, are uh, they're just not conducive to, you know, to durability and, and longevity. Yeah, no, there's a there's an adage in hitting, and, and kind of get you to see if you can if you parallel it to pitching. I'm not sure if it works, but in hitting, they always say if you're a good sound hitter, a good hitter can develop power. A powerful a power hitter, or someone who's locked in on just power, rarely becomes a good hitter. Does that apply to pitching too? Like kind of when you're talking to somebody like James, a young kid still developing, his body's yeah. not fully grown yet. If he learns to throw the ball the right way. Would would it be your contention that eventually he's going to pick up velocity, but he's going to pick up good velocity? Yeah, I, I mentioned to James that, and to me, the best exercise, I passed it on to my grandkids and other kids. I think John Stuper may have used it. John was a longtime coach for Yale and a teammate of mine at uh, at St. Louis, and I got it from Warren Spahn and Johnny Sane is, if you just rolled a ball to a young player and like a ground ball and he, and he went what we call the crow hop, hop, step, and throw. Uh, and if you did that on a downhill plane starting at about 40 feet, hop, hop, step, and throw, one hop it into a screen or a wall. And then as the days go by, I mean, Louis Tiant and I were doing that from almost 200 feet back in, uh, and I think we were each 40 years old. We were doing it in the outfield in uh, Yankee Stadium. We were teammates. And that's really where you build those long kind of muscles with elasticity and you do it properly. I mean, you don't go out there and throw it as hard as you can every time you short start at a short distance. And yeah, I think that's where you build up. Uh, you, you can build up the velocity, the, the, the elasticity, I guess I would call it in, in your arm. And uh, I know that by doing that, I've, I've picked up a, over those early years, picked up uh, some velocity, particularly after Warren Spahn showed me that article or showed me that exercise. And, it's, and I think with hitters, uh, when I faced Carl Yastrzemski in the minor leagues, we played him around the left field like a little singles hitter. And then Yaz filled out and he exercised a little more. And all of a sudden he's turning on the ball, hitting home runs. I played with a power hitter in Minnesota, Don Mincher, big, strong guy. Uh, and he just hit the ball to left field and they kept in, oh, you got to pull the ball. You got to pull the ball. Well, if you do that, when a hitter's young and you try to make him a pull hitter, he may not be ready to do that. 
And uh, you need to talk to, you know, quality people like Dusty Baker. And in Minnesota, they had Terry Crowley, who was a great hitting coach. But, you know, eventually the power, the power came and the ability to pull the ball came and Mitch started hitting 25, 30 home runs. So, but nowadays they want to push their methods, whoever they are and where they get them from, uh, on the players so quickly to develop that immediately. And maybe they're, their body and their mind, you know, you're a young hitter in the big leagues and you're seeing these pitchers for the first time and you may be a little uncomfortable. And so you're a little late and you hit the ball left field. Well, after you face him a few times, you got a little more confidence, the bat speed picks up and then you become a pole hitter. Yeah, it happens naturally as you, yeah. as you evolve. With, the, with these young kids now, it, it's tougher. And you and I are, we're, I'm, I'm a generation right after, right after you and a young man like James is uh, probably two generations after me, but, uh, they have many more inputs they have to deal with. Now. Oh, no question. And there's, you know, when, when I was, when I was coming through, you knew who the guys were to listen to there, yeah. the, the bird dog scouts were present. The college coaches were present. The high school coaches were, were, uh, very active in the grassroots developments of the community and nowadays with all these travel situations and every, there's a, I call them throwing coaches. I refuse to call them pitching coaches, these pitching gurus out there, these hitting gurus, how on earth does a young man like James, or even if, if my boys didn't have, have me, what would be your advice on to how to identify a good teacher? Boy, I, you know, it's, it's so hard. And I, I, I found that out in spring training. I, you know, the twins bring me in because I, I'm a special assistant to the president. Sounds like a fancy title, but I speak to, uh, we had a nice breakfast group there, Minnesotans and Tony Oliva, Rod Crew and I were out there and I'll do some things like that during the season. But I don't even have any desire to go in the clubhouse anymore because uh, one morning we we're having breakfast at a table. We had Paul Molitor, Tony Oliva, Rod Crew and myself. Uh and I was there for my first day. Those guys been there for a while. And I looked at them and I said, I got a question for you guys. Why are we here? And, and they looked at each other and smiled and said, we ask ourselves the same thing every day. So, you know, the, the one gentleman that was really picking my brain, he saw me gripping a pitch where I curl my middle and index finger around the ball without my thumb. And that's how I used to try to grip a ball and it increased the strength in my fingers which is where you get spin and it has nothing to do with velocity and it was kenta maeda's interpreter and he was in the same little locker facility that i had and he said oh i know what are you doing there so i told him and he started asking me more questions about conditioning my arm and i said you know this is refreshing because uh i don't get that and he said well you know kenta's not a a power pitcher. He's a pitcher. He's got four or five different pitches. So it's guys like that that are interested in that kind of stuff. But uh, I met the pitching coach. We said hello, but we, we really have no input because they're all tied into what is coming from upstairs in the analytics and what things that we did that were, you know, time tested and worked for 20, 25 years, uh, the, the modern thinking is, well, you know, guys did that differently. That doesn't work anymore. So uh, we're really kind of wasting our time then. And I feel badly for the young players and the young pitchers. Like I, I've said to, uh, I was at a, a function with Pete Rose and I saw Pete. I said, you know, Pete, you, Carew, Boggs, Tony Gwynn, they scouted you out of the game. I said, there's no room for you in the game anymore. I said, number one draft pick today would be Dave Kingman, maybe Rob Deere. Yeah. You remember those guys? They were, you know, home run hitters, but they struck out a lot and they maybe walked a little, but that's how the game has evolved. And so those of us that, uh, that did things a particular way, I think we have to understand, we just have to step back and we love the game, want to promote it. We hope people and everybody are interested in it, but, uh, we don't have a voice anymore. Do you think not, not to circle back all the way to where we started today, but when we looked at the world baseball classic, I didn't sense Japan was governed by analytics and, uh, power over substance. And I mean, they bunted, they moved the ball around pitchers. They were on the mound throwing strikes. They were ahead 
0-1-0-2-1-2. Those were the counts more often than not. Do you think something like, you know, if we look back at this World Baseball Classic and even the last, you know, all of them really where Japan's been in the Final Four, do you think that could wake up um, our baseball system a little bit? Well, you would hope so. Uh, I mean, I, I've never really delved into whether Japan relies on those things. I know for, for years, uh, watching the Japanese teams, whether it's in the baseball classic or when they were baseball classic or when they've come over to spend time at spring training, they used to go to Dodger town. And I think some, uh, teams out on the West coast as well. They've always been, uh, you know, you'll see this, uh, it looks like confetti on the infield with all the balls that they've dropped down to bunt. They bunt for like a half hour and then they all run out and just pick them all up all at once. Yeah. You know, so they, they have, like you said, a little system of, of kind of playing small ball. They don't, uh, uh, you know, even my last year as an announcer, I used to stand behind the cage and watch every hitter try to see how far he could hit it. And I think back to two of the great players and one home run hitter. I played with Harmon Killebrew, 573 home runs. Killer might hit two or three out of the ballpark in, in batting practice. He just wanted to get his swing loose. You know, if he made proper contact and it went out fine, but he wasn't going to try to force it out. And then Dick Allen would, would come up. He'd hit two to right, two to center, two to left, go into clubhouse, say, who are we playing tonight, old timer? And he's ready to play. <laughs> but now, you know, batting practice is like home run derby. And then the byproduct of that sometimes is these hitters are ending up losing time with strained obliques because, you know, you swing that bat time after time every day. And 162 games and all that practice, uh, something's going to give. Has anyone ever answered, and I can't get an answer to it, but I would think the optimum question to why we're asking these kids to swing as hard as they can, and men, and throw as hard as they can, I mean, did, have you ever gotten the answer why? Well, I think the hitting is that the the uh, the analytics – uh, which are just statistics, but the percentages and the statistics that teams have hired departments to study that now have said that the sacrifice bunt is just a wasted at bat, that they're looking at the overall percentages. Let's just say if a hitter has 550 at bats and he hits 300 fly balls, I believe the percentages that about 8% would be home runs. So that means that he's going to hit 25 home runs. But that's the average. Tonight he's facing Justin Verlander. So you throw those percentages out the window, but they don't do that. You know, they just rely. And then it's the same way I think with, with pitching is that, well, the best defense against keeping a hitter from hitting out of the ballpark is to throw every pitch and try to make him swing and miss. And as a result, they're, they're throwing pitches in, in early in the count that we kind of waited till maybe later in the count. We were not afraid of contact. Now I'll have to side with the pitchers here as I, I like to do anyway, but it is so difficult today for a pitcher because uh, if you don't, if you're not an exceptionally hard thrower, because uh, you can't push a hitter off the plate because they have all the body armor. And the old brushback pitch used to be a good weapon. You know, you would keep a guy from diving in over the plate. And then, you know, every, uh, the strike zone, the ball, the bat, everything is geared toward being much more conducive to a hitter hitting a home run. You couple that with the size and the strength of the players. In a lineup that I face, there might be the middle guys in the order. You say, okay, this guy can take me out of the park. That guy can. I can avoid them in a key situation. Uh, but you got down near the bottom of the order and you felt pretty comfortable. They weren't going to take you out of the park. Uh, but nowadays, every hitter that steps in there is going to swing as hard as he can and is a threat to hit the ball out of the ballpark. So that makes it much more difficult for the pitcher and that's why the game has turned into you know the kind of game it is it's power from the mound and power from the plate 
And when you have those two things, you're going to get a lot of swings and misses, and you're not going to get as much uh, as much action. We talk, they talk about that in golf now too. That finally, I think uh, uh, the RNA over in uh, you know over in Europe, they're going to think about uh, softening the golf ball, uh, and and that's what they should do. If they did that with the baseball, if they regulated the ball and the bat, uh, then they'd have the game we had in the '60s. But the fans of this era. Uh, they may like the long ball. They may they may like going to the ballpark and and seeing how many home runs are going to be hit tonight. Where I think you know when my twins teams who hit a lot of home runs, but it was it was kind of something special when Harmon hit a home run to win the game. Nowadays you have four and five a day. Yeah, I um with, with examining that you mentioned the body armor before the show. Uh, you know, I was looking at a, a video. of, Bob Gibson, and I actually sent it out on Facebook today. A dad had asked me about his son not wanting to pitch in this era and being soured by it, and how can he reinvigorate him? So I put a series of videos up there. One of them was Bob Gibson, and the hitters that spoke about Gibson, guys like Hank Aaron, Mike Schmidt, um, they spoke about him with respect, but there was fear. Um, no question, they had. And when they when they showed at bats with Hank Aaron, people don't remember this. There was a time when batters didn't even have helmets on. Right. And now right. They, they look like they're ready for the next, you know, World War III. Right. Well, at Eddie, you know, Eddie Matthews, who I think, uh, uh, you know, anybody that hit behind Henry after he hit a home run, he's probably going to get pushed off the plate because that was sort of standard procedure then because the object was, uh, you know, you want to make a hitter move his feet so he's not comfortable. And that's just out the window now. I had that little chat with Josh Donaldson a couple of years ago about, uh, you know, we wouldn't use any pine tar or anything to help grip the ball if you would step into the box with no body armor, uh, no batting gloves, no pine tar on the handle of the bat, just the natural wood and uh, no helmet. Well, he said, that'd be uncomfortable. I said, absolutely. That's the point. I mean, we used pine tar to try to grip the ball. It didn't It didn't help us throw any harder. It helped us to grip it. They talked about spin. I mean, a ball only spins about 15 times anyway on its way up to the plate. But if you forced a hitter to go up there with no pine tar on the bat, just that natural wood handle, he wouldn't be able to get quite as good a grip on it. And then no body armor or helmet. I don't think they would dive into the plate quite as much as they do today. Oh, there's no way. And yeah, I love the comment. Uh, it was it was Mike Schmidt made it, and he said he faced him when he was younger, and the the older guys told him, the veterans told him, Gibson's going to try to control part of that plate. The tough part is you don't know which part he's going to try to control day to day. So stay on your toes. And I guess Schmidt hit a little squibber up the middle end of the bat, one of those cue ball shots. And the very next time he got up, and he rolled up his left sleeve, and he showed. He goes. I still have the mark on my arm where he hit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was a different game. I mean, it sounds like it was a macho game that we were headhunting or something, but it was a, the brushback pitch was a pitch that was used effectively to, to keep hitters from, from diving in. And this as uh, a lot of great hitters have told me, you know, I can't protect both halves of the plate at the same time. Well, early in the count, uh, the hitter generally, if you, leave a pitch on the inside of the half, he's much more aggressive early in the count. So the idea to me was and you throw inside and you pitch outside. Uh, you know, you throw them to get them off the plate and then you pitch outside because that's the most difficult pitch to reach and you have a chance of getting it off the barrel of the bat. There again today with the ball and the bat and the strength of the hitters, they can hit the ball over the right field wall, like in Fenway Park, uh, where it's like 380-something to right center. That used to be quite an accomplishment to, to even for a left-hand hitter. Now right-hand hitters hit them, hit them out there. So, uh, you know, a pitcher has to uh, – you know, I can kind of understand why they're, why they're doing things they do uh, to try to combat the power of the hitters, but they could do it in a different way if they take away some of those – things that they walk into the batter's box with. Oh, I agree. I can speak from a hitter standpoint where on a hot summer day and your hands are a little slick and you don't have batting gloves or pine tar to help you with that wood bat. 
mean, your swing's going to be a little bit more passive when you get up there. You can't, you certainly aren't going to be able to grip it and rip it like these guys do nowadays with their bats. And even the bats are lighter, Jim. I, I, I had my son pick up my bat. I'm, I'm, you know, all, all Trump 49 going to be 50 next month. So my bat was a 33 inch, 33 ounce. So it was, it was kind of the same, same all the way through. So it was pretty thick, but that was the kind of hitter I was. I moved the ball around a little bit. I needed that extra little density. And then uh, I picked up my son's wood bat, 33 inch. And, and I'm again, you know, going to be 50. I whipped that thing around with one hand, like it's a wiffle ball bat. And uh, I'm not hitting like I used to, but yeah, I'm amazed at just how, how uh, light these, these bats are nowadays. Yeah, I think that the hitters, I know um, the Twins would not order bats for young players less than 32 ounces because there was so much moisture in the wood and they wouldn't get good wood. I think Harmon, most of the power hitters, Harmon Killebrew, they were like a 35-34. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was talking to somebody at that show in uh, in Chicago, a hitter. He would, Oh, it was, it was Ron Bloomberg who's going to throw out the first pitch this year in Yankee Stadium because it's the 50th year, 50th anniversary of the DH, and he was the first DH. He used like a 36-36. Well, I said, but there's a lot of moisture in there. Guys used to pour linseed oil on it, and then they had this big soup bone in the clubhouse, and they'd, they'd bone it down so that linseed oil would get inside the wood and harden it up. Well, now they dry the bat out, they laminate it, it's 31 ounces and it's like a lead pipe yeah. and they can swing it with, it's no different than the golf equipment, how much faster they can swing the golf club today than they could the old, uh, you know, persimmon head and the heavier shafts and the same thing too in baseball. They generate so much speed with those light bats. Oh, without question. Well, I've got two, two more questions for you. If you got the time, I know we're, we're approaching almost 50 minutes and, I appreciate your time, and so does the audience. But uh, it, you made me think about this with, with Ron Bloomberg throwing out the first pitch. You're going to be appearing at at uh, Doubleday Field, right, a Hall of Fame event yes. this summer. T- tell the audience a little bit about that. Well, years ago, two teams played what they called the Hall of Fame game. They would go into Cooperstown, and they would play at old Doubleday Field. And, uh, you know, they'd have a good crowd come in, and it was just an exhibition game the first time uh, – that I did it was 1966 with the twins. That's when Casey Stingle, Ted Williams were inducted. I got to watch that in the courtyard there. And then the Cardinals brought up this tall, skinny left-hander to face us from, uh, brought him up from AAA and his name's Steve Carlton. And he lefty pitched against us in the hall of fame game. Well, now with travel schedules and everything, major league baseball decided the way they would do it. They stay, they call it the classic game. I played it in 2009 when Bob Feller at age 90 uh, faced a couple hitters. Oh, wow. And, uh, so they'll bring in uh, maybe a half a dozen to eight uh, Hall of Famers. And then there will be a player uh, represented from each of the 30 teams will come in and uh, play. I'll probably just be in a coaching position. I don't think I'm going to take the field at all. But uh and it benefits uh, some of the some of the charities that the Hall of Fame are involved in, and it uh, gives the fans there a chance to, you know, to mingle with players that uh, they probably followed on their particular team. So yeah, I'm going to do that. That's Memorial Day weekend. I think Raleigh Fingers is going to be there. I believe Lee Smith, and then uh, like I said, every team uh, will have a representative, uh, one of their more recently retired players that'll that'll uh, be in it. Nice. Yeah. Memorial Day weekend. So I'll have to take a look at that. And, and so you're definitely not going to take the field? Uh, well, I mean, we'll take the field probably for pictures or something, but no, I, uh, you know I don't what I mean. have any desire. I, I threw out the first pitch uh, legitimately in 2015. That was the 50th year okay. of our World Series team. And Torrey Hunter caught it. I still have the autograph ball. And I said, just cheat a little bit. Right behind the plate, don't sit six feet back like a catcher does because I want to get it from 60 feet, and I, I got it just kept it off the ground. And then Tony and I threw one out last year from a, Tony Oliva from about 25 feet. That's more my style. But, no, I'll let the recently, uh, you know, the young guys, I'll let them go out there and have a good time, and, and uh, I'll sit in the bench with my pom-poms. 
That's all right. And double days of band box anyway. You don't want to. So I, and I've got I've got one managerial question for you. So I know you, when you uh, broadcast in the booth, you're always very uh, I mean, you, you say this to to a T into a situation. Unless you're on the mound, it's very hard for you to judge what what, what you would do unless you feel it out there. And I'm assuming the same from the, the managerial spot, too, if you're managing a team. I think Mark DeRosa had a tough job with USA Baseball. Um, you know, and he, he's, he's a really good baseball guy. I enjoy listening to him. He, he understands the game. But I don't know how much how much the organization's pulled away from his decision-making, whether it was pitching or even how to use position players. So I tip my hat to him for taking that spot and uh, and doing as well as he did, especially in his first – that's his first job. That's a heck of a first job to have. But there, there was a situation in the game. There was – we were down 2-1. USA, I say we like I'm on the team. USA was down 2-1. Uh, runners on first and second, no outs. And Mike Trout steps to the plate. And it's the sixth inning. And my son Tanner turned to me. He's like, what do you do? And again, I try to be diplomatic because it's easy to manage from the couch in your living room. But I'm thinking like, do, this, do they bunt them? Do they move these guys over with Goldschmidt and Arenado coming up? And um, they didn't bunt them. And, and here's the devil's advocate. Number one, it's the, you know, Again, I hate to say back in the day, that's the move to make. That's the baseball move. First and second, no outs. You move a guy over, didn't matter. I think Japan would have done it. Um, but nowadays, like you said, analytics says don't bunt. You don't want to give away the out. Um, and then you look at Mike Trout, the, maybe our best player in the game right now. When's the last time he bunted? Maybe when he was 11 years old. Um, yeah, right. how, would you, how would you have played that situation? Well, I don't think you can ask a player to do something that he's never done and that he hasn't done very well. And that was always Tom Kelly's. I would I would ask TK sometimes if that situation came up, were you thinking there? He said, you know, he can't bunt. I can't ask him to bunt. He's never, you know, and the same thing nowadays. I mean, Dick Allen, like when I played with Dick Allen, great player. I, I hope Dick gets in the Hall of Fame soon. He passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. But Dick would have hit the ball. He would have made sure he hit a, a ground ball the other way somehow. You know, he... He wouldn't have tried to hit it out of the park, but uh, no, you can't, you can't ask players. And I've always said too, from the booth that you have your own thoughts of what you do as a fan and as a broadcaster, but nobody knows their personnel better than the players. Right. Uh, and, and the only thing I think Mark DeRosa could have done in that situation, and that would have brought down a chorus of booze. And I refer to a game I did in Fenway. Gosh, it must be 20 years ago. And the Red Sox had a similar situation, and Jim Rice was the do-up hitter. And Joe Morgan, not the former player, but the manager, Walpole Joe, they call him in Boston, he pinch hit Jody Reed for Jim Rice to bunt. And Jim Rice did not take kindly to that. But, see, he sent a guy up there who was capable of bunting. So that was the only thing you could do. If you had a player on your team that was so adept at bunting, but to pinch hit him for Mike Trout, I mean, you just don't do that. So uh, I don't. I think, you know, for Mark, it's almost like you're managing an all-star game. You're putting a team together with the superstars of the game. And if you wanted to put a team together to just win one game, you would want somebody on that team that could pinch run and pinch bunt and, you know, bunt in situations like that. And, and they didn't have that. Yeah. I, I've lied. I got one more for you. It made me think of one more situation. DeRosa really liked Schwarber and he came through. He had a home run in the game, I think, to make it 3-2. But there was a situation earlier in the game, uh, again, potential run scoring situation. He worked the count 3-0. And I I think somebody asked him afterwards and, and his response was, from an analytics standpoint, he didn't say analytics, but he kind of alluded to the numbers said that the pitcher was going to throw this type of pitch during this count. So he took a shot on a 3-0. So he, he was hitting a buck 70 or buck 80 at that time. 3-0 count with the, the hottest hitter in the classic, Trey Turner, behind him. Um, same thing, sitting with Tanner on the couch, and he's like, what do you do? Now, again, from the couch, I don't have any of the pressures of the game. Turner hit behind him. I said, I tell him to take twice because I think he's going to swing. And uh, he ended up popping it up and, and ending the ending the potential run. What, what would you what would your do in that situation? Do you give him the take once or twice? 
Well, again, I think you have to know your, your personnel. I mean, Harmon, for example, Harmon Killebrew, our great power hitter, he seldom swung at a 3-0 pitch. He just wasn't comfortable. He said, I just think the tendency is, you know, I'm going to want to swing too hard. So he, he was not comfortable swinging on 3-0. and There are some guys I think that you could do that for. And again, that's where if you manage a team over 100 games, you're going to know what players can do certain things and what players I, I wouldn't care what the percentages said that the pitcher throws on three and O because he might not throw that on three and O to Kyle Schwarber. He might've thrown it on three and O to Mike Trout. You know, again, you, they, these percentages never look at who the guy on the other team is. Uh, you know, you, to me, you throw those percentages out the window. Yeah, if I'm facing Mickey Mantle 3-0 and and Roger Maris is on deck, Roger, with no disrespect, is a left-hand hitter. Well, I'm, I'm not going to – I'm, I'm going to pitch a little differently to, as Robin Roberts always told me about uh, how, I pitch, how he pitched Willie Mays. He said, tell me the inning, the score, and the count. And uh, that's how you have to dictate your pitching and, and your hitting too. But in these days, you – you, managers don't have players really that can bunt very well. I think maybe the Indians, uh, oops, excuse me, the tribe, the Guardians, uh, they'll always be the tribe to me because the tribe is a group of like-minded people, like a family. Yeah. Um, but I think the Guardians with Stephen Kwan and some of those, they they probably use that bunt and hit and run better than anybody. But you have to have the personnel to do it and uh, – you know, in, in uh, Kyle Schwarber's case, I think as hot as he is, if uh, if you have if you feel like he's disciplined enough to look in that certain area where he wants a ball, and if it's not there, you take it, then uh, then you're you're confident that he can do that. You give him the green light. Yeah, well, I, I like how you answered both. That's why you, you've always been a great broadcaster in the booth. You've got the you've got the knowledge to to stick your chest out and say, this is how you do it. But, uh, very eloquently and very intelligently, uh, paint a good picture for, for those trying to take it in. So, and I appreciate you answering those two impromptu. Those were two. I always ask some selfish questions in the interview that are only for me. And if, um, yeah. well, that's, and it's logical, but it is it's true. There's a tendency and that's what we enjoy about being, being fans Yeah, is that, uh, same way with pitching. Well, I would have thrown them this, I'd have thrown them that, but see, with my experience, I know I know that fans are going to want to feel that way. But as a pitcher and all the experience, you know that when I'm on the mound, I have a pretty good idea I want to throw. So if somebody else makes a suggestion other than the catcher, uh, I'm probably not going to listen to it yeah. <laughs> because those are the two guys that are in the flow of the game. That's it. You know, how's the ball feel? Oh, it's got good stitches. I can throw a curveball here. Those kind of things that – the percentages and the analytics don't tell you. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. I, I agree totally with that. Well, we, we've kept you for almost an hour here today. What, what do you want to leave our audience with today? Any any last parting shots? Well, let's let's keep thinking about a way we can uh, fit that World Baseball Classic in every year and have it at a time when it uh, when it doesn't interrupt uh, or cause injuries to big league players. And let's do something. Have teams start to do something about this hideous celebrating, you know, you, you hit a ball and you look in the dugout at your teammates already instead of looking where the ball's going and let's just play baseball between the lines and do the celebrating when the game's over and your team's won. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that message to our audience. And for those out there that want to join our World Baseball Classic Committee, our informal one with Jim and I, um, we'll call it the tribe because right now we're, we're like-minded in our approach. Right. Right. And, um, you know, just <laughs> reach out to us. We'll, we'll let you know when the meetings are, but uh, I want to thank you, Jim, today. Again, fantastic show. Uh, certainly our audience is going to take a ton from it. Uh, we encourage our subscribers. Keep, keep coming, uh, download, listen, like, subscribe, follow us on that social media. Again, you guys are driving me on that. So I'll get back to everybody. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, We'll engage you. Uh, keep it keep it all uh, informative, though. You know, we're, we're trying to we're make it about building better baseball IQs, and our audience has been great with that. You know, to our um, to our to rest of our shows, keep doing the great work that they're doing, and to our listenership, 
as I mentioned earlier, over 70 countries now, grassroots all the way up to Major League front offices. And uh, we're, we're glad to have their attention and we'll keep pumping out uh, great content for you every week. So, Jim, thanks again. We appreciate you so much. Always enjoyable, Dave. Thank you. And that's episode 147. This is Cott's Corner with the Hall of Famer Jim Cott, Hall of Fame left-handed pitcher.